Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, you know my fondness for quotes to begin episodes these days, and I have a few great ones for today. The following words have been attributed to one Ms. Coco Chanel, who apparently at one point said, if you're sad, add more lipstick and attack, which is kind (laughs) of fabulous. (laughs) And also Elizabeth Taylor once quipped, quote, pour yourself a drink, put on some lipstick and pull yourself together. And yet another woman who definitely knows a thing or two about the art of cosmetics, Dita Von has said, heels and red lipstick will put the fear of God into people. (laughs) Okay, wielding the lipstick as a weapon to face the world, clearly all three of these beauty icons have latched onto the inherent power assigned to the tubes of cute and portable color now carried regularly in the handbags of more than 80% of American women. But how did such a cosmetic staple acquire said power, you might ask? Well, as today's guest has written, Quote, makeup was political, it was financial, it was civilization and science. Yes, today we are happy to welcome Eilis S. Carter to the show to discuss her soon-to-be-released book, The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. Eilis is a professional copywriter working in the beauty industry, and her book is a tour de force of historic research dress listeners, tracing the history of lip color from the 1700s all the way up until the present day. She uses lipstick as a lens to examine the hopes, dreams, and anxieties of American society. We cannot say enough great things about this book. Elise, welcome to the show. Elise, welcome to Dressed. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. And I, I am so thrilled to be speaking to you today about your book, The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. And our regular listeners will know that I am massively lipstick obsessed. Right now, I am wearing MAC in the shade of mangrove. But even during quarantine, when things were like, you know, the deepest, darkest hours and, and things were very strange and no one was going anywhere, I was still putting on lipstick every day because... It's a source of happiness for me. So (laughs) thank you for this book. (laughs) One of my favorite expressions about it is the film critic Molly Haskell I studied with um, in one of her essays. She describes it as a cheap high and it's just buying a lipstick or, you know, and I I can't, I can't say that that's wrong. Although I don't want to, if you don't like lipstick, you don't have to wear it. I'm not pressuring anybody about it. Yeah, but it's true. There's something a little bit thrilling, you know, and shape-shifting about when you put it on. It's, It's very transformative, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's a good way to put it. So I'd like to speak first about the very early history of lip color, because it wasn't always lipstick, per se. Could you tell us a little bit about the types of lip color products that we might see in the 1700s and the 1800s? Yeah, lipstick generally then, there was sort of two ways to come by it. There were a lot of recipes for homemade items. And I, in one, in the book, I feature one by Martha Washington, the first first lady. And hers was made from, I remember when I found the recipe, people were like, that's disgusting. And I was like, yeah, there's <laughs> raisins because it's lard, basically earwax from whales, alkanet root, and a bunch of other things and some raisins. <laughs> and the alkanet root gives it a, a sheer redness I found online somebody had actually attempted to make it, although you can't get whale earwax readily anymore. But it was like a bomb because, you know, people still had dry lips. And that, you'll find that in a lot of recipe books. Mm-hmm. Any domestic guide for women will have thing what we would now use as cosmetics, things for chapped skin. You know, you had a rough life. It was a frontier and people made things for, you know, dry skin or dry lips. So there were do-it-yourself recipes and they might've had some coloring. You could also buy from um, one ad in particular I found was from, she was a milliner, so she made hats or or supplied people with hat trimmings. 
And she had what was called either rouge or rouge and powder. And it was what we today think of like as an all over color, you know, that's lips and cheeks and eyes. And it would just be red. It was made from cochineal. Cochineal is the shells from beetles. You just grind it up. It's a red color. And then it would either be powdered and you could mix it with something or it was in pomade, which meant it was mixed with something like paraffin or wax, other waxy substance or lard or Lord knows what all, because there is no, there was no FDA until the late 18th, early 19th century. So that's basically what you had until the late 19th century is this all over color. If it's rouge and powder or pressed rouge, it's very dry. If it's in a pomade, it's probably very oily and schmears. And it was, you know, there was no like, oh, I'm more of a winter. So I, you know, I'm a cool, I have cool skin tones that that wasn't a thing. It was just red. Yeah. And it was just whatever they had, they made it from. The goal really wasn't, it wasn't, certainly wasn't exactly self-expression in terms of like, this plays up my best features or, you know, I love wearing a black lipstick. It was really, the idea was to maintain that flush of youth that when you're young, your lips are bright and red, your cheeks are rosy. And it was really a way of recapturing that with varying degrees of success. Yeah. We at FIT Special Collections have a whole host of beauty manuals that some of them date back to the 18th century with all these recipes in them. And it is really fascinating, um, some of them. And we have a, more of a preponderance of them in, from the 19th century. But just like you were saying, in terms of like all these beauty recipes, people were making these things at home for all sorts of different complexion problems or makeup or hair products. And this is something you would kind of collaborate with with your pharmacist, I guess, because these ingredients aren't necessarily just like super readily available to us walking into a store today. No, and I think pharmacists, you know, I mean, you're also talking, you know, your pharmacist also may have done some bloodletting or some leaching. So, you know, certainly the, the trade of pharmacy has gone, it has become more modern, but I think they stocked a good number of odd things because they're like, oh yeah, you should definitely put some like Spanish moss on that. It looks, <laughs> you know, it looks infected. Uh, so they did carry a lot of odd items. Like I have no idea what Alcanet root is or where I would get it if I needed it today. Right. You know, right. No clue. So who was wearing lip color in this kind of early period, 18th, 19th century? And I'm hoping that we can talk about how the wearing of cosmetics was viewed from a moral standpoint. You know, that is one of the things that I found fascinating about the research, what I found in my research, because I had always suffered from the notion, and I I think it's very common in our collective understanding. And I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about scholarship. I'm talking about like, you know, if you ask any person on any street in any town in USA, you're like, when did women start wearing makeup? And they're like, the 1920s, before that you were a whore. And that's not exactly true. It's it's actually not very true. There is an element of truth to it. Like there, we are a very puritanical nation. We were founded by, to some extent, by religious wingnuts. And that will always be there. So they're all, and you know, the Puritans of Europe were, makeup was verboten and they're always, if you are a very religious person, there is a lot of backlash against any artifice. You know, it's that you're tricking, you're tricking a husband. But if you look closely, the association with sex workers and the idea that there was a before and after and that regular ladies started wearing lipstick, I think that actually is something modern, a, a modern way of viewing history, which is doesn't exactly line up with the historical record. If you read the newspapers of the early 1800s, there are basically two arguments against makeup. And one of them is moral. That will always be there. It's still there. And the other one is health. Yes. I was going to ask about that next. So thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. Because the truth is that there was no FDA and it was the Wild West. And even a pharmacist's understanding of modern chemistry was not what it once was. You know, all, every, 
American knows about the origins of Coca-Cola and that we used to have like radium drops. Like we have put some pretty horrific things in cosmetics and actually everything uh, in the U.S. In, in the pursuit of health and beauty. Most cosmetics were probably loaded with arsenic because everything was loaded with arsenic, like your, the paint you used on your house and fabric dyes and any number of things. Women used to die on warm, humid days from inhaling Paris green. Mm-hmm. Like it would leach out of the, the wallpaper and they could get poisoned that way. No wonder everyone was fainting all the time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's any number of reasons for that, but like... Yeah. I mean, if you took hair samples from the average, like 19th century American, it was probably loaded with arsenic. So certainly cosmetics were, arsenic is incredibly destructive to the skin. It causes pockmarks. So the idea was you started wearing makeup and then you could never stop because you were covering up more and more and more to cover up the damage you had done. You know, it wasn't an unreasonable fear because this, this stuff was poisonous you know it was loaded with terrible things you know like you know arsenic is what I know about and there could have been any other number of things and forget about sanitary you know there was no hair nets and gloves right and lead I think is common was commonly used in in these preparations at that time yeah, tons too. of heavy metals probably and tons of like you know lord only knows what formaldehyde I you know formaldehyde was used up until very recently in nail polish and and hair treatments. I, I mean, there's some pretty toxic things in the in these concoctions. And there was no telling, you know, there was no central, there was no Maybelline, there was no central quality assurance for one company. So the objections really were less about if you read the papers, women are still very interested in it. And they talk about, you know, like the social season, the debutantes are coming out and they come out to be introduced to society and meet husbands. And so they're powdering and they're blushing and they're, you know, maybe wearing a a lip and there's no condemnation of these women as sex workers. There's no slut shaming of them. They are just simply trying to catch husbands. Right. And these are some of the upper class. So women of the upper class wore makeup. You know, even if you go, one of the periods that particularly interested me is we think about the frontier, the wild west as you know, the saloon girl and then the school marm. There's just nothing in between, which is not at all true. But if you read the papers, like I remember reading a paper and it was literally from a town that was called like Tin Cup, Arizona, like not, <laughs> not even Denver, not even, or, or, you know, Oklahoma City, not even a bustling metropolis like that. And they talk about like the makeup that's going on in Paris and not in a judgy way, just like, this is what's happening this season, you know? It's also just really impractical because if you think your makeup wears off on your Starbucks cup now, like imagine if you are plowing a hundred acres of the plains, if you live in a small house, it's just- Milking cows. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a very impractical item. But there is this notion of like consumerism that women are interested in it and they want to know about it. And those are just everyday wives and daughters and school teachers and whatever women are doing in in the West, they're still interested in what's happening in Paris and cosmetics while we're still settling the planes. So I think this notion that it was like hookers and then everybody is, is a myth. And it just sort of doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It was kind of the upper class maybe some women of the upper middle class and yes, probably sex workers and actresses too, but not, not only them. You know, it's interesting because even dating back as far as the early 1800s, like we're already talking, telling women to exercise more uh-huh. and to mind what they eat. Like that is not at all a new thing. Like before we had invented the rubber sole uh, for shoes, we're telling women to walk a mile every day before breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we see it in those beauty manuals that I was referencing earlier. They they talk about exercise at length. And, you know, it's not necessarily exactly the same exercises maybe that I did at the gym this morning, but there is that dialogue that's happening there. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's also, it's a very American notion that you can improve your lot. Like if you don't like the way you look, you can take control of that. It's not just genetics, you know, like this is the face I got. That's what genetics or God dished out. 
It's that you can take control of it and improve yourself through due diligence, through hard work. Yeah, absolutely. I have to ask you about this one little tidbit in your book that I had never heard of. And it is a little bit, it's fascinating, but it's also maybe a little bit terrifying as well. And this kind of going back to that, you know, health objection. What is this practice called enameling? Oh, enameling is fascinating to me. If you want to see what enameling looked like, I suggest everyone Google um, John Singer's Sargent's portrait, which is known as Madame X. It's actually Virginie Gaufray. As far as I can tell, the, it was literally painted ladies. And it had by function, it had to be an upper class phenomenon because, you know, when drag queens talk about a face crack, you can literally <gasps> have a face crack. It is literally enamel applied to the skin. And it's, you know, the Victorian ideal was this very literally statuesque, you're supposed to look like white marble. And so as pale as you could possibly be, as untouched by the sun as you could possibly be. And these women would have themselves enameled or painted. And it took a while because it was hand applied and they would, you know, blot out your skin, your own skin tone for something much paler and ethereal. You could even get the blue lines that were supposed to represent veins sort of painted in on top because you're like, oh, oh, look at how unearthly she is. And you had to stand really still because it would crack. (laughs) And they would leave the fingertips and the tips of the ears undone. So you could see like, oh, she's a real person. But it was like incredibly impractical, you know, like it really was someone like who was not lifting her own children or like had to haul water. Right. You couldn't have done anything that. And it was enamel. I mean, it was basically you would go to a salon and someone would paint on your skin. It really was to just make the complexion perfect. You were sort of a living painting and like, again, you know, it had like some women did a slightly lavender tint to it. Mm -hmm. I have read that Virginie actually also used lilac powder to kind of like heighten that effect as well. Yeah. Cause it, you know, that makes a white have that just like otherworldly ghostly glow. And yeah, if you look at that particular painting, you can see that the tips of her ears are actually quite red. I don't know if I'm irritation or, or what, but like, yeah, it's the tips of her ears and the tips of her fingers are unpainted. I'm like dying to delve into this a little bit further. Yeah, it was such an elaborate process. And it's just, you know, like, admittedly, I will occasionally watch The Real Housewives of something or other. And like, these women all look incredibly, their makeup is super elaborate. Like, I get up and put on makeup. But like, clearly, these people have contoured themselves within an inch of their lives. (laughs) just go about their day. And I'm like, don't you get makeup smears on anything? Or like... And I just, I guess it was sort of the equivalent of being a real housewife is that it's just this incredibly untouchable, impractical, but fashionable look. So what is the point in time when we start to see the general public's attitudes towards makeup become increasingly open about women wearing cosmetics? And I want to say, I'm saying women wearing cosmetics here because men, makeup, and gender. That's a whole other ball of wax, and I think we'll tackle that here a little bit later. (laughs) Yeah, uh, equally fascinating, but yeah, also its its own animal. Okay, there are a bunch of things that are baseline to that, and one of which is technology. Lipstick and technology have always been a match made in heaven. They really are, even to this day. And I, you know, I'm seeing like... AI come into lipstick manufacturing. And that's like, it's a whole thing. But like, at the changeover from the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, you see a few things. And one of which is just women in the public space. That is the point at which America tips over from being a country where most of the people live in rural areas to a country where people live in cities. If you go into, let's say like, in New York City, there's Old McSorley's Ale House. And for years, up until like, I think the mid seventies, they did not admit women. Yes, I used to live right around the corner from there. Yeah, and you'll notice that there is no lady, the ladies room is a later addition because there was no ladies room because there were no ladies. And things like department stores are the first public spaces to have ladies rooms. Women really just don't have that many 
spaces to literal spaces to be like women were not supposed to be out walking alone. And the industrial revolution changes that more women move to the city, more women take jobs, you know, more women are in factories and offices and schools, pink collar jobs, they're nurses and so on. And then there's the technology of the lipstick itself, which lipstick, I think, were it not for the changes in its formulation and its packaging, it's interesting because the author Edith Wharton describes putting on lipstick in public as a filthy habit. Not wearing lipstick, putting it on in public because it was a boudoir item. You know, like you didn't bother people, you wouldn't brush your teeth at the, ta- at the dinner table. So you wouldn't put on lipstick there either. It's a very private act. And I think it's not the application of lipstick that changes. I think it's the reapplication of lipstick. So at the end of the 19th century, you get the stick form. And it's really like a crayon. It's a crayon wrapped in wax paper, like a crayon. And then it's in a little box. So you can carry it with you in your purse. And the other thing is women start carrying purses. Women's pockets start being built into clothing before a certain era women's clothing it didn't have pockets you wore it was like a fanny pack you know you wore it under your clothing your pockets were like on a belt and there were slits in your skirt if you had them we've done a whole episode on tie on pockets so yeah it's it's a whole thing and like you don't have until that era mass manufacturing of clothing you know so there's the whole pocket issue there And even still, like, again, are you, it's a very impractical item if you're a farmer's wife, but if you're a woman in the city and you're going out socializing, you're dating is a very, you know, going out of the house to date is a very modern concept. There's a great book by my college advisor, Beth Bailey, called Front Porch to Backseat about how dating evolves. And because you now have this middle class who has free time and disposable income. And they live close to each other because they're in the city. So you get things like Coney Island and you get the movies, you get soda fountains, you get places people can go in public. So making up goes from upper class women who have the time and disposable income to do it and the lifestyle that'll, that will support it to more middle class, upper middle class working women who are out in public and they're splitting from their mothers. They start to split, you know, America becomes obsessed with this idea of modernity. You know, we have the light bulb, we have the streetcar, we have all of these things. And so as we move into the 20th century, women really start to embrace this idea of modernity, of being Americans, of splitting from like identifying as American rather than wherever you've, if your family is immigrated from Western Europe, whatever that is, you know, that means. And so this idea of it's very modern. So it's, it becomes by degrees more acceptable starting at the end of the 19th and moving into the 20th century. The thing for me, I think if you just ask the average person, they'd say the 20s. And I think the thing that makes that possible and really kicks it into high gear are two things. One is the lipstick tube. 1917, we get the first patent of the lipstick tube. It comes from New Jersey. And one guy patented it. Didn't, I don't think it made him enormously wealthy because like, I can't remember his name. I always forget it. But the lipstick tube makes it possible to carry it and reapply over the course of the day if you are outside of your home. So it goes in your purse. It goes in your desk if you're a secretary. If you have a car, it can go in the glove box. So suddenly lipstick is a very portable item. Before it was, it was waxy and it would melt and it would stain everything and good luck getting that out. So the, it's not the application of lipstick that people objected to in earlier years. It was the reapplication of lipstick and the reapplication in public. And where do you go to apply it if you don't even have ladies rooms? And right. what are you doing out in public anyway? So as women start to enter the workforce and the U.S. becomes increasingly urban and people have pocket change, those are all the factors you need to have a population that will embrace this. And I think one of the reasons they embraced it just as a concept, like it just caught on, was the birth of mass media and the birth of the movies. Like there is no separating 
the movies and the I, modern idea of the star or the starlet, like that was an idea. There were fa- certainly famous people before. There were kings and queens and generals and founding fathers. There were certainly famous people, but like never anything like we had after the movies. Like they had to invent the concept of stardom. Like the, I always, I bring up the first real movie star was the Biograph girl. And they didn't, it didn't even occur to the people at Biograph to put her name on the marquee because there was no, you know, I mean, yes, there was Sarah Bernhard and Sandra Bernhard's later and um, Lillian Russell, but there really was nothing like a movie star. Like that concept had to be invented and developed. And so they, you have the first movie star is the, the Biograph Girl, which I, I always think is such a shame because her actual name was Florence Lawrence. Which <laughs> such a great name. It's, that was her, her, her mother gave her that name. So it wasn't even like her stage name. Um, exactly. But these things come together at the same time. And so by the time we finish World War I, you have a whole population that is pretty much wearing lipstick or a huge percentage of the population that's wearing lipstick. And just to touch back on this, this the early Hollywood starlets, cosmetics was incredibly important to this overall aesthetic that they were projecting on screen, whether they were, you know, playing the part of the vamp or whether they were playing the part of the ingenue. How would you describe the look worn by silent film actresses of the 19-teens and the 1920s? You know, that look is interesting to me just because, one, I was, I was a film history major. And two, you know, they are adapting from the theater and not street. Like, they are not looking that the makeup is very exaggerated on both men and women because they're figuring out the technology as they go. And you're talking about an era when studios, rather than lighting or in addition to lighting, they were open to the sky. They were using the sun. One of the reasons it ends up at Hollywood is just there's so much daylight and it's bright and it's clear. And started, you know, some of it started off in New Jersey and Queens and like the light is just not as reliable. So you know, really what they're doing is exaggerating the look. You know, if you're the vamp, your eye is very dark, your lip is very dark. It's a very, you think of that tiny 20s bee stung lip, you know, that's just in the center. And that's because, again, it was waxy and it melted and it moved. And so to keep it in place, you just started with a smaller lip outline. It's allegedly the thumbprint, the size of the thumbprint of Max Factor. I couldn't find anything to confirm or deny that, but it's a great story. Um, it's the lower lip and then the two halves of the cupid bow. And then if you're the ingenue, if you're the Mary Pickford type, you want that, you know, bright eyed, very soft, but they, you know, pencil in the mouth somewhat so it would show up, childlike. It's still very Victorian in a lot of ways. Uh, I think people want, think we went straight to the bob, but that's actually a little later than the teens and certainly even in the 20s. And that was a very fashion forward look, like the short hair was really cutting edge. So what they're really trying to do is very similar to what you would do on stage, which is try and get the actor's emotions to really come across. And so they're learning as they go. One of the reasons Max Factor became such a big deal, what really established him as a a force to be reckoned with in terms of, you know, there are dozens of makeup artists working in Hollywood at the time. In the early 20s, they moved to what's called panchromatic film, which picks up light better. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you can see, you can really get a pretty good sense of what the actor's makeup looks like. And it's very mimey and it's very like Halloween adventure. And it's, <laughs> it's wrinkly and it's grotesque and it settles into everything. And it's just, it's pretty gross. And so he's like, well, I'm going to, he went in his workshop and he created something that was just much more flexible and so looked more like skin. So they looked less nightmarish under the new lights and the new film. Um, it was like when we went to HD and suddenly right. it's like, oh, I have to blend back beyond my chin. Like <laughs> I have just this mask of makeup. So he developed panchromatic makeup, which would eventually become called pancake makeup. And that was just genius. And that he had been working in the field for a long time already. He was established and he had his own store, but that made him an expert and that made him a beauty expert. And he, you know, he had the backing of the studios Mm -hmm. and he 
had access to starlets and to to people really that people wanted to be like that. And he he would send representatives into department stores and they would teach you, you know, his makeup. He had trained a he trained a fleet of makeup artists to teach women like if your eyes are too close together, do this. If your eyes are too far apart, do that, you know, and to teach people tips and tricks. And then you would, of course, it was a great way to get people to buy makeup because you were like, well, I want to, you know, I certainly want to look like, you know, Marion Davies or, or, or Joan Crawford or, you know, whoever he was working with. So it really established this, that link between Hollywood and glamour and beauty expertise. And the other thing that that did was it Americanized it because before that, Americans had always really looked to the French for beauty expertise, like just having been born French was <laughs> somehow assumed. And so you get all these makeup and estheticians who take the name Madame because it sounds French. And it's, you know, Madame Helena Rubinstein was Polish and she took the name Madame Helena Rubinstein because it gave her that European like flair and you know, trustworthiness and like secret knowledge of beauty things. Yeah. But I think this is so interesting too, because, you know, here we have all these legions of women who were unaccustomed to the, you know, quote unquote, making up. And at some point there has to be this push to educate women about products and how to apply them. And Max was sending out representatives and there were many other countries. You just mentioned Helena Rubinstein. She actually had a school like a beauty school. And in like the 1930s and the 1940s, you start to see all these little beauty schools pop up all around the United States. Yeah, it becomes an industry and it becomes an industry with experts and things you can pass on. I think that's part of it is like, I remember like the earliest Vogue mentions of makeup, which are in the late 1800s. Whoever was writing it was like, it was a marquee. It was someone who had a French name. It was marquee of something. <laughs> He's like, well, if you're going to make up, don't be a disaster about it. And, you know, it's, there is a lot of advice from the late 19th century on into the, at least the depression and maybe to a, you know, just rejiggered to the current moment, which is where by all means wear makeup, but you have to do a good job of putting it on which is a great way to sell an industry is that we have occult knowledge that we possess that we can pass on to you. It's been certainly very democratized with the YouTube video, but it sort of works along the same lines of we have makeup secrets and you can learn them. And I think, again, that was an idea of modernity and Americans love self-improvement. They love it. It's it's just such a part, it's such a part of our ethos. And this is self-improvement for women. You know, diet, exercise, stenography, all of these things are useful things that you can learn. And makeup is, becomes one of them. Well, and they were paying for it too, because you write in the book that, quote, in 1920, it was estimated that American women and probably a few men, spent a collective $750 million for rouge, lipsticks, powder, perfume during the year of 1919. You actually go on to say also that lipstick was now as political as it was popular. So what is that political aspect? Well, in the context of even that quote, I found that one state senator had said, well, we can't be socialists. We spend so much money on makeup. (laughs) Consumerism is always going to be that bulwark against socialism, we think. And coming into the 1920s, you have these amazing things. Women are given the vote and we have prohibition. But again, we have just ended World War I and we have given women the vote. We have gotten over the flu pandemic of 1918. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And more women are in, not all women, not a majority of women, but more women are in the workforce than ever. And so I think America in that moment, things are happening fast. The country is booming. The economy is booming. You know, the technology, you know, we have radio, we have movies, mass media, any given city will have half a dozen papers, different papers for different languages, different classes. So 
America is really coming into its own as a world power and, you know, just as, as a force for modern culture. And what does that mean for women? And you see after women are given the vote that there are, you know, some of them are tongue in cheek, but I think people are, I, I think some people treated it as what if you woke up tomorrow and Congress had decided, you know, the nation had decided as the collective, like all dogs could vote. And then you'd be like, well, how do we court the dog vote? Or will dogs just, vote? <laughs> you know, will they outlaw cats? You know, people are treating it like it's that alien and that insane. And will they trick us with their lady hypnosis? And, you know, <laughs> are they, if they're too pretty, will we accidentally end up putting a woman in the White House? And some of it is tongue in cheek, but some of it is really like, well, what happens when we give women this very basic form of power? And it is frightening to a lot of people. I mean, it's always frightening um, to have women, you know, think about the abuse that Nancy Pelosi takes, whether she deserves it or not in the public sphere. So that's what you're coming into in the twenties. And it's this sort of the old school, old generation versus the flapper and the idea of women going to college and voting and drinking and dry, not drinking and driving. Drinking, comma, and <laughs> Maybe sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah, not don't do former. But like out in the, again, this women in the public sphere is a very modern concept for non-royalty mm-hmm. and is not a figurehead for their husbands. So America is adapting that and lipstick becomes politicized and, you know, all of these editorials and, at one point, I think I think there's an interesting case in there of um, of Pearl Pugsley of Arkansas was sent home from high school for wearing lipstick and powder, and she's like, "But I want to wear lipstick and powder." And they're like, "No, go home and wash your face." And she took her case all the way to the Arkansas Supreme Court. Now she lost, but women were suddenly feeling themselves, right? You right. know, as a as an economic block, as a voting block, it was women largely who achieved not just suffrage, but at the same moment, prohibition. And they're like, well, now what do we do? You know, like following the Civil War, you know, the two main causes that had sort of occupied them were suffrage and prohibition. And now they have them and the question is, what's next? Um, And it wasn't racial equality. So women find themselves in a position where they have have never found themselves with spending power before. Uh And the idea that they could go to college and have careers, you know, that's not everybody. It's a somewhat small percentage, but it's enough that it sort of rattles the establishment. Yeah, for sure. And the wearing of cosmetics at this point had become so normalized, as you note, in no small part, thanks to flapper culture and also Hollywood. But you also note that by the 1930s, that not wearing lipstick was a statement. And this is really interesting because we've already done an episode on Elizabeth Hawes, but at FIT, we have a collection of her unpublished manuscripts that she wrote later in life. Um, they're all typewritten. They're really fabulous. But um, for anybody who hasn't listened to the Elizabeth Hawes episode, she was an American fashion designer, kind of one of the very first American fashion designers to become somewhat of a household name in the 1920s and the 1930s. She was also a writer. So she wrote copiously for ladies' magazines and newspapers, et cetera. She wrote nine books. But this story that she tells in some of these unpublished manuscripts is really, really interesting. She was she was very progressive. Her fashion designs were usually worn by kind of like artists and intellectuals. She was considered maybe a touch avant-garde. And so was she personally. You know, she did really outrageous things like wearing blue jeans in public in the 1930s. But there's this one incident that touches on lipstick specifically because she talks about how she was out in public. She was walking, um, shopping in Midtown on, you know, Fifth Avenue or whatever with a friend. And she had on a very wide kind of like dirndl skirt that she had designed. And that was kind of the exact opposite of that like very thin felt 1930s silhouette that was fashionable at the time. So right there, she's kind of like already outside the box. Um, She's walking down the street. She wasn't wearing a hat. And she says that people thought she was so bizarrely dressed that they were like literally moving out of her way while she was walking down the sidewalk. And ultimately, her and her friend go into Bergdorf Goodman. 
And one of the owners of Bergdorf Goodman sees her in the store, knows who she is, right? She's a well-known fashion designer. And I, apparently he flew into a huge fit of rage and just got red in the face and started yelling and <laughs> telling everyone that she's crazy, dot, dot, dot. She's not even wearing lipstick. So I think that just underscores like how common it had become at that point and almost necessary. Oh, yeah. I mean, not the WP, not the Works Project Administration itself, but like somebody who was working with them. I found all of these things about, you know, there's advice you give to job seekers when they they go out in the world. And some of it is fine advice, like, you know, make sure your nails are clean and, you know, look people in the eye and and show up on time. And that's all very normal. But they they really they're like, you should be wearing lipstick, but not garish lipstick. And oh, my God, if it's on your teeth. I think one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize with this is I, you know, I go back, I came up as a performer through the burlesque scene, even though I'm not a burlesque performer. Exactly. I'm a sideshow performer. And one of my idols in that scene is this woman, you know, biological female, world famous Bob, who refers to herself as a female, female impersonator. (laughs) And I bring this up all the time because one, I think it's like, she really should get a Nobel Prize for that and somebody make that happen because gender is a construct and gender is an ever moving construct. Like it does not stay stable. And I think that's one of the things I really wanted to emphasize was like what it is to be ladylike uh-huh. is a constantly shifting thing. And so absolutely within one generation, it goes from like, don't put on lipstick in public, you cow to like, don't leave the house without lipstick. Are you insane? Are crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, cause it looks so, suddenly it looks so unpolished and it look, you know, it's, it's very interesting because to me, like I grew up, I thought punk rock and then I get to the hippie culture, you know, I wrote that whole thing on hippie culture and it's kind of, I found the sixties kind of hilarious because Revlon which for years had just been at the bleeding edge of cosmetic advertising. And Charles Revson, for all his faults, was very good at advertising. They have no idea how to get their arms around a generation that is rejecting makeup. Uh They have no clue what to do with themselves. And you see them eventually introduce something called unlipstick, which is like lipstick, but not, I think it's a gloss. I don't know. But it's, it becomes the norm and then rejecting it becomes the act of rebellion. And it, that happens really very quickly. And then, you know, you go from the 30s to the 60s, they'll, the subculture will reject it again. And then another subculture will pick it up. And it's amazing to me. I, I think a lot of it goes back to this concept of, and I shout, you know, like all, all due respect to world famous Bob, that like this idea of female, female own person. Yeah. Where are we at with the the idea of what is the proper amount of female to be, you know? And it's like, now you're supposed to be, you know, like tough. I can, you know, bench press a cow. I'm strong and do all these other things. And my makeup is always perfect. And my eyebrows are always on point. And like all of these things that you're supposed to be all at once and it'll shift again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up Revlon and and the, the whole concept of advertising because the whole marketing of lipstick and as you say, in the marketing thereof, the creation of consumer fantasy. I, I love this idea so much. And I'm hoping you might talk about some of the messages about lipstick that American women were receiving from advertising, maybe from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s, kind of that era. That is a golden era of advertising. Yeah. Um, I, the, the image search for this was fascinating to me because I would find stuff and I'm like, are you kidding? You know, like, you know, I'm Gen X and I look at this stuff and we're, we think we're a very hard generation to advertise to because we're like, I don't need your, I don't need your labels, man. But it's fascinating the way we talked to him. One also, because I've been a professional copywriter for a great many years and like, everyone's like shorter, 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 like the shorter you can get the messaging, the better. And so to, to the point where it's just, you're basically grunting, <laughs> you know, Thanks, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Like 240 char- characters is a luxury to me. At any rate, they're very copy heavy and they're really selling this within an ad for Tangy lipsticks has just decades of 
fascinating advertising. And Tangi was the original mood lipstick. It had something in it that re- reacted to the pH in your skin. So it was slightly different on everybody. So it was supposed to be perfect on you. And all of these lipsticks would have these entire soap operas within a tiny, tiny little ad about like, men liked her, but women whispered about the girl with the painted lips. You know, you looked overpainted. It wasn't natural. Like none of those lipsticks looked natural. It just wasn't the formula. And it was about social acceptability, or it was about catching a man less than like, who are you today? You know, what do you wake up and feel good in? And more about like this idea. And it was also a lot of them took place. Cody makeup had a line of lipstick called Sub Deb, which is short for Sub Debutante. It meant you hadn't made your debut in say society. It was for young girls. But it was based off this idea that at some point you'd be a debutante. And I think <laughs> a lot of people can really say that, even in the best of times in America. They were selling this idea like romance was possible, social acceptance was possible, luxury was possible with the right lipstick. Mm-hmm. Or they're very foreign. They're lipsticks like Taboo or Tattoo, two different brands. You would always see on very white women, but in sort of South Seas get up, like they were exoticized, you know, no actual like Pacific Islander women were in the ads, but just this idea like lipstick could take you this exotic places or it was very European and continental. And it was always aspirational. You were always traveling to Europe or you had summer picnics or and you were not in the steno pool. <laughs> it was no, like, we get that you're a working woman. They never talked about that. They no. talked about durability was probably the closest that they got. But up through the 20s and 30s, it was really about just this aspirational fantasy that you could live a life that you saw in the movies or on the pages of Cosmo magazine by purchasing this lip- lipstick and applying it properly. In the 40s, we do get into working women during the war. And I loved the fact that that you specifically talk about how more than a few brands tried to ally their product with wartime patriotism. This is fascinating. Yeah, well, the, the access powers, all of the access powers specifically banned makeup. The Nazis didn't allow it. The fascists didn't allow it. The Japanese didn't allow it. So it became like us versus them. Like mm-hmm. we have pretty girls and they can wear as much lipstick as they want. Even if they're wearing overalls, it was very much about keeping up the gender norm, even though you now have women um, riveting airplanes together. And so that when you conjure in your mind, Rosie the Riveter, she probably has a red lip in your mind. She certainly does in the Rockwell illustration. And the names of them were fantastic. There was like Montezuma's Red is from um, the Marine core anthem from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. And it's supposed to match the band in their hat. We have like Liberty Red, and Firework Red, and Jeep Red, and a lot of reds. It was about keeping up spirits. It was about keeping up gender norms. We just came out of the depression. And while there, you could have lipstick, it might be not as much as you want because financially out of reach. And we had to, the supply lines were messed up in, the, in World War II. And we had to adjust for that. And the government was you know, you could only bring in so much lanolin and you had to get it from the right place. There was a, a fad for things that were inspired by Latin America because our trading lines were still open to Latin America. You see so much of that in the fashion magazines of that era. Yeah, it's even um, Disney's Three Caballeros comes out then because it's making Latin America our trading our trading ally. And even, you know, they start bringing characters into movies. They bring in um, Carmen Miranda, and Cesar Romero and... Ricardo Montalban is actually from New York, but, (laughs) you know, as these exotic Latins, because we're making Latin America as our ally now. Mm -hmm. So it's very much, it becomes keeping your makeup on, keeping, not letting things slide, even though you're now working on an assembly line and the boys are away, becomes an act of patriotism. And there's a wonderful ad. The owner of that company was Constance Luft Hahn who had inherited the company from her father, but I think was actually quite savvy in the way she ran it. There was a wonderful ad. Like she used to be front and center as this like super waspy debutante, you know, like here's her in pearls and a gown and standing in front of a portrait. It's, you know, all very fabulous. 
uh, in the 30s and then you get to the 40s and it's a woman in a flight suit standing on the wing of the airplane and the headline is women war and lipstick. And it's just, it's about, you know, like you are helping win the war. You're bringing our boys home. Make sure you got lipstick. And it's just, it's kind of this amazing messaging. Yeah, it was, it was almost sold like you have to keep up the soldier's morale by wearing makeup. Don't let your looks go. Yeah, they're in a foxhole in like the bulge and, but I'm sure they're worried about it. But yeah, it, I mean, you do what you can in, in, a, in stressful times, but it is fascinating, like how much a form of propaganda it became. And the names of the lipsticks are great. You know, Tussie Jeep Red. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. I, you know, I've never seen a red, well, now I guess I've seen a red Jeep, but you know, that's not what we thought of. Right. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, that happened astoundingly quickly. Like within months, the new lipsticks are all have patriotic names. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've mentioned Revlon. We've mentioned Helena Rubinstein. Uh, we've mentioned Tangi. I would like to ask about another heavy hitter from this kind of mid-century lipstick game, and that is Hazel Bishop. Uh, I love Hazel Bishop. Yeah, Hail Alma Mater. She and I both went to porn art. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel, yeah, Hazel is a really interesting case. And uh, I think there's still really something there for women in business these days and women in everything. Hazel graduated from Barnard just as the depression hit and she had wanted to go to medical school and just there was no money for it. So she went to teacher's college or somewhere at Columbia and she studied, she, would, she was a chemistry major. So she ended up working as a chemist, an industrial chemist for a number of companies. She worked for one of the oil, big oil companies. She had, did work for a vacuum cleaner company. And she ended up eventually working for the dermatologist who would go on to form Alme. You know, and that was her living. And she was introduced to someone. She Somebody set her up. I think it was on a date that she was not interested in. And the guy said, oh, you're a chemist for a dermatologist. I have a kiss-proof lipstick that I just got from Paris. You should see it. And he gave her a sample and she didn't like it. She thought it looked like dried blood. (laughs) And she's like, I can improve that. So she literally took it home and set about fixing it. Like she literally was whipping it up in the kitchen sink of her apartment. And... She eventually hit on a formula. She discovered what the right additive was that she had. So she invented Hazel Bishop Kiss Proof Lipstick. And that was all lipsticks were supposed to be long wearing. You know, everyone bragged that it was all day wear. It wasn't. Uh, Hers actually came pretty close. It's probably a pretty drying formula, but kind of not the point. She developed it. She had an early partner. They managed to get it manufactured and get a supply of it. And she convinced Lord and Taylor in New York to sell it. In the first day, they sold out. And what they didn't have, you know, they had this great formula, they had this product clearly women wanted. What they didn't have was capital. Uh So she brought in someone who had made a ton of money selling advertising for the radio show of the, the Lone Ranger, which was a huge deal at the time. And that, this guy had made a ton of money. And he's like, I will invest in your company in exchange for stock. And this would come back to bite her in the butt later. And, you know, within a few years of launching, they had something like 24% of the U.S. lipstick market. Which is an enormous meteoric rise to success. Yeah. They were the first lipstick company to advertise on TV. And you have to understand that TV is black and white and the resolution is nothing, but they could advertise by like rubbing their hands. They would put on the Hazel Bishop lipstick and another lipstick and then rub their hands and you would see that the other one smeared. And, you know, they got to be on huge shows. She would eventually butt heads with the partner and they would sue and counter sue each other. And eventually she she saw where it was going. No one, you know, she she had an all-male board except for her and no one was going to take her part. And this guy had money and he had lined up all the sponsors. He was sponsoring something huge. It was like the $64,000 question or one of the quiz shows that was just tremendous at the time. And she finally 
cried uncle and took a buyout, left the company. And so the company did limp along. There was Hazel Bishop lipsticks and makeup. You know, I think they lasted into the 60s, maybe the 70s, but they just were never a big player again. Like people sort of stole the intellectual property of the kiss proof lipstick. So they didn't have that monopoly anymore. And it, it just sort of never quite, they never kind of regained that momentum. And eventually her partner was the, the original investor was fired. And re- it's one of my favorite, like fired and replaced with some guy who had been a bouncer in a bar in Hong Kong. <laughs> you know, it just it was such a weird story. This would actually make like a really interesting like project for someone's like master's thesis. It really would. Uh, her archives are up at Radcliffe and I don't know why they're at Radcliffe. I know Florida nerd, but whatever, or, or FIT for that matter. Yeah, we have an oral history with her. Yeah, because she was the, she ended up, I, in some ways, I think she had the last laugh, if not quietly, because she was hired to go all over the country speaking at cosmetics industry trade shows. She was an expert in the field. She was a stockbroker. So she was basically a financial analyst specializing in the beauty world. And she was the Charles Remsen chair of marketing at FIT. And so I think in a way she had the last laugh, like she endures, it it sort of speaks to, I have interviewed like the woman who founded Lip Bar and a couple other uh, women of color who have founded makeup companies and their biggest thing is finding capital. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's still very much an issue. Like it's one thing to have a great idea in the marketplace. It's another thing to have access to the levers of power. Yeah, And I think that's, what a lot of the women who did found makeup companies in the past either had husbands who were wealthy or were able to somehow, you know, Madam C.J. Walker, like, just built the business out of her house and then invested every nickel she made back into it. And, you know, just up until a certain point, financed it all herself through her own, the sweat of her own brow. But I don't think we sort of under- realized, like, those success stories are few and far between. And it's literally just because up into the 70s, it was very hard for unmarried women to get their own line of credit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the nuts and bolts of becoming the next Pat McGrath can be very complicated. Yeah. Um, and I think this comes back again when you talk about Kylie Jenner, you know, like where they talk about her being self made. Like, mm, yeah. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Well, I, I want to talk about Black Beauty because that was actually my next question for you. You write in the book that in 1965, Flory Roberts launched the first department store cosmetics brand under her own name that was designed specifically for women of color. But this is 1965, right? You already mentioned Madam C.J. Walker. There have been many other Black Beauty brands that had existed prior to 1965. Would you Tell us a little bit about maybe a few of them and also perhaps their business models, because I think that the business models of many of these companies are very fascinating because they gave very real, tangible, entrepreneurial opportunities to Black America. Yeah, uh, there's one in particular, Lucky Heart Cosmetics, which was out of Chicago. And some of them were super interesting because... For me, it was one of those things when I did the research it, you have one piece of information, I give another piece of information, and suddenly like they collide into each other and you're like, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. But I just never thought about it, you know, which is sort of a being white or get, being extended white privilege. Yeah, it just never occurred to me. You know, before we get to Flory Roberts and, and Pat McGrath and Fashion Fair and all of those brands, and certainly Rihanna, things like Lucky Heart Cosmetics was founded by a Jewish couple and who had grown up in a black neighborhood, you know, which was not uncommon in those days. And what they realized is, I, of course, in those days, people did a lot more business through catalog and stuff like that and door-to-door sales. But the advantage for this community of door-to-door sales of having an Avon lady type model was that throughout the country, Woolworths might not stock for you. And even if they did, they probably didn't want you in there browsing. Mm -hmm. So going into a store as a black person in America was a fraught activity, you know, unless it was black owned. And so putting it on the Avon model, having door-to-door sales took away that pressure. 
And it was, you were, you know, a neighbor, a teacher, someone you went to church with. Suddenly it was someone you had a relationship with and it could be in your own living room or your own home or their home. And it took away the anxiety about shopping and just the range of colors. Like we are still doing this, like people are extending their color range now, but you know, Max Factor didn't, I think it was, I think Max Factor went up to something called Amber number two that was sort of tan. Um, It certainly didn't factor in that women were darker than that or, you know, had just all sorts of different skin tones um, and forget about multiracial. So these companies, while owned by, I think two of them are owned by Jewish families, while not themselves being people of color, understood what it was to be a minority and tried to talk to customers in a way that it is, it is, some of it is very awkward now looking at it, but as they understood it, people of color wanted to be talked to, they tried to make it sound like a peer. And so it was, they're very interesting companies because it was, they recognized a need and they filled it. It was very inexpensive. It was cheap makeup. It wasn't great. It wasn't, you know, the red door experience for Elizabeth Arden, but it, it, it filled a niche in the market. Flory Roberts and Fashion Fair, these companies date back to the 20s or 30s. Flory Roberts doesn't come along until 65 or 69. And what I didn't know, I spent my whole life, I learned this writing the book, like, because I had known Flory Roberts because I grew up in Manhattan and we had Bloomingdale's and you would walk around the floor there and it was on the floor of Bloomingdale's. I just assumed Flory Roberts was black. She was not. And I also just learned she was Jewish. So she, again, you know, we, we understand what it is to be a minority and we'll often speak to that in business. But I, I spent my whole life assuming that this was a woman of color catering to other women of color. And she wasn't. I, when I saw the picture of her, like my jaw, I'm like, she's blonde. Um, <laughs> she's a big blonde with font hairdo. But, you know, that also speaks to her ability to walk through the door of the buyer's office and be granted real estate. Get her makeup on those department store. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't Madam C.J. Walker kind of employ that same, we're, we're using this term Avon model, but like door-to-door sales. Madam C.J. Walker um, had representatives like that as well, right? She had schools and salons and, and beauty is an interesting thing because America used to have a vast number of, of papers for the Black community. And uh, they had some really interesting women's columns. There's one writer I read a lot of named Fanette. I just love that name. And they talk a lot about how presenting yourself and presenting yourself beautifully is, it's elevating and it's uplifting. And it is, of course, fraught with the white supremacist notion of what is beautiful. Lighter skin is obviously, you know, is, is positive, sadly, is more beautiful and so on and so on. And they talk about, you know, the size of your lips and not over-exaggerating. And so, and these companies do sell lightener. So they are not without fault, but it is very interesting. And it is, it really deserves to be examined about that they did have a role to play and they were there. Uh-huh. There, are, there are a bunch of coffee table books on red lipstick and on lipstick and you sort of never see that played into the history. And unfortunately, some of this history is gone. Like some of these archives are gone because they were so ephemeral and they were so not a part of uh, sort of mainstream corporate culture history. Like, you know, um, I talk a lot about how you know, all due respect to the house of Elizabeth Arden, but like there is a lot of self-mythologizing in there that, because Henry Ford did the same thing. That's how he became a business mogul in America. But, you know, we don't preserve the records of, of those small businesses, the way we Revlon clutches onto its archives and Avon has theirs and so on and so on. Listeners, we will end our conversation with Elise here today, but if you would like to learn more about the history of some of the Black beauty brands we were just discussing, please check out Elise's book where there's lots more information on them, including Lucky Heart Cosmetics Color Keyed Cosmetics or the brand Fashion Fair, which is actually launched by Eunice Johnson after she had trouble sourcing foundation shades for the models in her Ebony Fashion Fair. 
And Cass, of course, we have already done an episode on the Ebony Fashion Fair. So you can go back and check out that episode if you haven't already. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you slip your favorite shade of lipstick into your pocket next time you get dressed. Please don't fret because this is only part one of our two-part episode with Elise. She will join us again on Thursday to chat about lipstick, feminism, Blade Runner, and early 90s hair bands like Poison and Motley Crue. <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely went there and you do not want to miss it. We will, of course, be posting images accompanying this two-part episode on our Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you can also DM us if you have questions or suggestions for future episodes. You can also email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else in iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More lipstick coming your way Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.